I can remember being five years old and time seemed like it stood still. Summer would last forever, but not as long as school. School would just drag on. And I can remember, you know, like a subject lasting 45 minutes and just staring out the window thinking, when will this end? Yeah. And then I can remember being 15. Do we have any 15-year-olds in the house? Any Close? Yeah, 15. When are you going to get your driver's license? The answer is it's going to take forever, right? It just feels like forever. You're 15, and one year is just going to take eternity so you can start driving. I remember turning 15 and a half, getting my learner's permit, and that next six months took forever. It just seemed like so long. And now I'm 41, and I blink, and my youngest or my oldest son turned nine. One blink, that's all it took. I know, I know that I'm going to blink again, and he's going to be moved out. I'll blink again, and we'll have grandchildren. And then I'll blink again, and I'll be dead. <laughs> it's a very sad story, right? <laughs> happens really quickly. But, but, but what's the difference here? How come I can go from, from 45 minutes to taking forever to blinking, and I'm dead? Well, a big part of that is time frame, right? So when I'm five years old, one year is one-fifth of my life. And I can barely remember all of it, right? So, so it, that one-fifth just seems like so long. And then I turn 40, and one year is one-fortieth. For some of us, one year is one-eightieth, right? All of a sudden, that year gets shorter and shorter and shorter. One year for God is not even a drop drop in the bucket. It's not even like a molecule in the bucket. Our entire life, our 80 years, most of us, if we're lucky, we're going to get 80, maybe 90 years. And if we're lucky and we get that time, it's still not even a drop in the bucket for God, who has lasted for eternity past, forever. It's so big that our minds can't even wrap around it. There is no beginning for God. He has just forever existed. And when you've existed that long, it's just a drop in the bucket, right? And yet, when we look back 40, 50, 60, 80 years, for some reason, we think we've got real perspective. We become arrogant in our perspective. And I love our senior saints. I love our 80-year-olds. They have lived longer than I have, twice as long as I have. They have a lot more wisdom than I do. They do have greater perspective than I do. So I love to talk to them. I love to get information from them. I love to glean as much wisdom as I can from them. But even they are just a drop in the bucket. But the problem is we get arrogant. We think that we know best. And even if you look back at all of humanity, even just all of Christian history, the last 2,000 years, we were building on knowledge, right? We're building on wisdom. And so, especially when we started to write and, and retain information, we think as humanity, we're building all this wisdom and we become arrogant in our built-up knowledge. And in this arrogance, we begin to question God. We begin to think we might know better. And that's what Peter's going to get into today. Those people that think they know better. Those people that think their perspective is greater than. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter. I keep making this mistake. 
Second Peter. We're in Second Peter. First Peter was last year. Second Peter, chapter three. We've been walking through this whole big series on grace. First Peter was standing in grace or growing in grace. We looked at how God has lavished His grace upon us. That He has declared you righteous. He has made you holy. There's nothing you can do to take that away. All you can do is grow in it or be stagnant in it. But He has made you holy. He has made you righteous. So if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you don't call yourself a dirty, rotten sinner. Because you're not. You're now holy and righteous. You were a dirty, rotten sinner. Now you're holy and righteous. And it's simply because of what he has done for you. And then we started looking at 2 Peter. And 2 Peter would have been all about standing in this grace. 1 Peter was written because of the persecution. Under, uh, under Caesar Nero, persecution was running rampant. He was lighting his gardens up at night by Christians. Pretty gruesome. That was the persecution they were suffering. And in the midst of that persecution, Peter writes to them to grow in the grace God has lavished upon them. But in the midst of that persecution, there began to rise false teachers. People, in the midst of that chaos that the persecution produced, there's these false teachers that began to emerge. And so Peter is writing this second letter as his last words. And it is a warning against false teachers. And it is a warning telling us that we need to stand in the grace God has lavished upon us. So he starts off with chapter 1 reminding us of that grace. He starts off in chapter 1 reminding us that we have been made righteous by God, that God has given us everything we need to live, and that then he outlines how we can grow in that grace. Chapter 2, he begins to introduce to us the false teachers. And he lets us know that these false teachers are promising freedom. Follow me and my ideas, my philosophy. You'll truly be free. But in the end, it's only slavery. That is the final product of what the false teachers are bringing. Chapter 3, he's going to continue giving us the warning about false teachers. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the word or the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up with fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All right, let's dig in. So this is now the second letter. We already covered that he wrote the first letter during a time of persecution, and it was to grow in this grace. God has lavished this grace upon you. Grow in this grace. Now he's writing to address these false teachers. So this is the second letter that he's writing to you, beloved. And I want to highlight this word, beloved, for a second. That it is, he's going to use it five times in the last chapter. 
So chapter 3, 18 verses, five times, he's going to use it. And it's to show affection. Genuine concern and genuine affection for those he's writing to. I think it'd do, we would do well to pay attention to that. Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should have genuine affection and genuine concern for one another. Not just in this church, but with other Christians as well. There should be genuine concern and genuine affection for brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So in both of these letters, he is stirring these people up. In both of these letters, he's reminding them of what God has done in their lives. He's reminding them that that God has lavished his grace upon them. It is important for us to understand this because we live out our theology. If we think we need to earn God's grace, we will constantly be living in shame and comparison. When we think we need to earn God's grace, we will compare ourselves to other people, either to prove we're not good enough yet, so we need to work harder, or to prove that we're already better then. And it ends up becoming this ugly comparison game. And you will live your life in shame and comparison. We need to understand that God has lavished his grace upon us. That when we put our faith and trust in him, he transferred us from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive together with him. And he has made us righteous. He has made us holy. So he is writing to remind us in both of these letters. I am stirring up your sincere mind. This word stirring up is to arouse or to awaken. And so what he wants to do in both of these letters is to keep us awake, to remind us by keeping us awake constantly. We need scripture to constantly remind us of the grace God has lavished on us. If we are not constantly reminding each other and digging into scripture, we will forget If we're not constantly reminding each other and and being reminded through Scripture of God's grace, we will bend back towards legalism. I can see it in myself all the time. If I'm not being reminded of God's grace and from His Word, all of a sudden I'm going to become really legalistic. I'm going to think I'm better than you because I've got a check mark that I'm going to check off. And guess what? My check mark will always, my checklist I should say, will always leave off the sins that I struggle with. That's the way legalism works. We leave off the sins that we struggle with. We include the sins that we're really good at or good at not committing. And that only proves that we're better. That's our bent. That's the twist. So we need to constantly be aroused. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to meet together as the body of Christ, to continue to encourage each other. We need to gather together as saints to encourage each other in God's grace. That's why he's writing. That's why it's so important. Because if we don't, we will drift away from God's grace. I'm stirring up your sincere mind. This term sincere mind is, uh, if we compare it with the false teachers, we've been studying these false teachers. These false teachers were hypocrites. They were actors. They weren't sincere in their faith. So they professed to be Christians, but they had never put their faith and trust in Christ. They had professed to be Christians, but they were either legalists, still thinking that they had to earn it, or they were called uh, antinomianism. Uh, What that is is anti-law. So they were these anti-law people that thought that you could just get away with whatever you wanted, that God wouldn't come and judge the world. 
So that was the two groups that was coming into this, the, the false teachers. So we're comparing the sincere mind, the true believer, with those who weren't true believers. I think this is important for us when we think about methodology in the church. And I don't, I don't like to compare church to church, but there is a reason why we have a methodology that we have in this church. Methodology is how do we do what we do. I believe that the gathering of the saints is to equip the saints. The gathering of the saints, and I think we can get this from here, the gathering of the saints is to encourage one another to grow in God's grace. It's not necessarily to, we don't design a Sunday worship service to engage non-believers. If you're a non-believer here, I'm so excited that you're here. I hope you grab a hold of God's word. I hope you let it change your heart. But we don't design Sunday worship service and we don't design our small groups to be what's called seeker-friendly. Because I thoroughly believe that the, that the church gathering together, saints gathering together, is here to encourage one another. And there's a different time and place to go out and engage the non-believer. So that's why we do what we do here, because we gather together to encourage one another in God's word, to encourage one another to grow in the grace that he has lavished upon us. So he's stirring up, by your, up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what he's getting at here is we're going to remind each other through Scripture. We need to continually turn back to Scripture. Scripture is going to become the ultimate authority. I shouldn't say going to. It is the ultimate authority. That's the point of verse number two. Scripture is the ultimate authority. These false teachers are trying to claim authority. They're going to attack the apostles on their authority, and they're going to claim authority over you. If anybody is a claiming authority over your spiritual life, if anybody is saying, you need me to be better spiritually, that person is only trying to use you. They are only trying to use you. The ultimate authority is Scripture. So he writes out this term, uh, predictions of the holy prophets. That's a reference back to the Old Testament. So he's going to include the Old Testament. The Old Testament is important for us. We shouldn't just ignore it. Sometimes as Christians, we have the tendency to ignore the Old, the Old Testament. He includes the Old Testament here. And the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So the new, this is going to include the New Testament. The New Testament is the command through the Lord, or the command of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. I think it's important to catch this apostle part. Because an apostle, simple, apostle, the, the Greek word apostle simply means special messenger. That's all it means. So you'll go through the uh, book of Acts, and you'll see that there are certain people called apostles that are just special messengers. But Jesus also took this idea of being a special messenger, and he, he made it into an office as well. So in the church, you would have the office of deacon, who are servants. Ben just became a deacon. We voted on him a couple weeks ago. Congratulations, Ben. We're so excited. He is a servant. He serves. He was here earlier today fixing a water pipe. We appreciate that. So there's deacons. There's elders. Those are the overseers, the people that are overseeing the church. And there's apostles. The apostles are special messengers. The requirement, there are re biblical requirements for each office. 
The requirement for the office of apostle is that you had to have been taught by Jesus himself. So if you use that as a requirement for office of apostle, then you can say that we don't have office of apostle anymore. Do we have special messengers? Yes, there are people that are still special messengers. But they don't have the office of apostle anymore because they were no longer, because we, can't, we weren't face-to-face -face with Jesus being taught. So the last apostle is the apostle Paul. Jesus specially revealed to him. He took him three, out, three years out in the desert and he gave him special revelation. That is our last apostle. So that is the last office of apostle. Now, the, this is important because along with the dying off of apostles comes the inability to write new scripture. In order for the writings to be considered canon, to be considered part of the Bible, they had to have apostolic approval. Without apostolic approval, you can't have it as a part of the Bible. So, with, the last, with John's death, who was the last apostle, you no longer have the ability to write new scripture. So that's why it's so important. That's why I like to make a big deal out of that word apostle and, and what he's getting at here. What he's getting at here is we need to turn back towards scripture. Scripture is our final authority. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. So why do we go back to the authority of scripture? Because scoffers are going to come scoffing. <laughs> so knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days. I want to make a little thing about this last days. We are living in the last days. Some people wonder if we're living in the last days. The answer is yes, we are living in the last days. In the Bible, the last days is a reference to the, to the time frame between the ascension of Christ and Christ's return. So far, it's been 2,000 years. So we've got 2,000 years of living in the last days. But that's what the last days mean in Scripture. So yes, we are living in the last days. So in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing. Basically, what he's saying here is scoffers going to scoff. It makes me think of uh, that Taylor Swift song, Haters Gonna Hate. Right? Haters Gonna Hate. Scoffers going to scoff. This is their very nature. The very nature of a scoffer is they're going to scoff. To scoff means to mock or to try to bring shame to. So the very nature of a scoffer is they're going to scoff. There are some Christians that think if only we are nice enough, if only we're nice enough, if only we're good enough, if only we can just lavish people with enough love, then we won't be laughed at. It's just not true. The nature of a scoffer is they're going to scoff. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do all those things. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't love. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be out there being nice. But we should know that that's not our motivation to not get laughed at. If you claim to be a Christian, you will be laughed at. It's going to happen. It actually makes me think of when the pandemic first hit. Samaritan's Purse wanted to be nice. So they arranged for these uh, mobile medical units to be put up in New York. And they were going to help with the overflow of, of what's happening in New York. So they went out there and they started building these mobile medical units, and the city of New York had an uproar. How dare you Christians try to help us? Get out of here with that. Well, what was the offense? It wasn't that they were trying to help. The offense was that they were holding to a biblical standard of what God says about the world. That was the offense. It didn't matter that they were trying to do good. 
That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do good. Yes, we should try to do good. But in doing good, we should realize that scoffers going to scoff. Haters going to hate. I remember taking a tour with Canyon Ministries uh, and listening to Adam start talking through uh, how the, the catastrophic flood carved out the Grand Canyon. And I noticed there were some people paying attention. Some people, you know, anytime you have a tour, people kind of want to get in on it. They want a freebie, right? So I noticed there were, there were some people paying attention. And I noticed them laughing. They thought we were a bunch of fools, a bunch of idiots. A scoffer's going to scoff. We have to wrestle with that fact. We have to be prepared to be laughed at. And in our preparation, we need to remember that we don't scoff back. That's not the nature God has given us. God has changed our nature from being scoffers to being righteous and holy, to being saints. So we should not scoff back. That's not our nature. As they scoff, we love. And the greatest example of this was when Jesus was on the cross. As he's on the cross, what are they doing? They're scoffing, they're mocking, they're saying, if you're really God, come down, prove it. Now, he could have very easily said, hey, look, I proved it the whole time I was on earth. Remember when I raised Lazarus from the dead? That's proof. Or he could have just gone on and scoffed him even more and been like, oh, yeah, I'm going to come down with my angels, right? But he didn't. He continued to show love. That's a high standard, but that's the standard we've been called to. So a scoffer is going to scoff. We're called to not scoff back, but to love back. Love in return of scoffing. And then he gets to the reason why. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Following their own sinful desires. This is the moral root, or this is the root that produces their argument. This is the root of their heresy. It is moral, not intellectual. So the whole thing is they want to follow their desires, right? They're following their own sinful desires. That's what's producing their behavior. And that's actually what's going to produce their argument. So next he's going to get into their argument. And he's going to refute their argument. But it's important for us to recognize what is the root of their argument. It's not an intellectual root. It's a moral root. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to submit their lives to God. They want to be their own God. Aldous Huxley is one of my favorite authors. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. He wrote A Brave New World. One of my all-time favorite books that was actually life-changing for me in college is called Point Counterpoint. It's all about intellectualism. He was considered an elite intellectual, and he was an atheist. I'm going to paraphrase one of his quotes because I always uh, can't get it word for word, but basically at one point he was asked about belief in God. He said, I don't want to believe in God. Because if I believe in God, that means I have to change my behavior. So instead of believing God, I'm just going to believe that he doesn't exist, and then I can live whatever way I want to live. What I appreciate about that quote, and what I appreciate about Aldous Huxley, is he got right down to it. There are a lot of people that want to deceive themselves, believing that they believe this intellectual argument when really it's all about the moral root. So if we can just not believe in God, 
then we can behave any way we want. And most people that don't believe, many people that don't believe, that's what they really want. They don't want to have to live a certain way, so they'd rather just not believe in God. So that's the root of the argument. That's really what it comes down to. It's not the intellectual argument. It's the moral root. But then they're going to produce, from that, they will produce an argument. And here's their argument. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So that's the argument right there. That's the argument in a nutshell. Christians believed in the second coming, and with the second coming of Christ will be judgment. At some point down the road, God will return, and he will judge. And what the, the false teachers are saying is, Jesus isn't going to come back. Don't worry about it. There won't be any judgment. You can do whatever you want, and there will never be judgment upon that. That's what they're arguing there. And so they say, well, where is this promise? Do you think there's a promise of his coming? Where is this promise? Now, they had another promise. They promised freedom, true freedom, when really all it was was slavery to sin. So now they're saying, what's the promise? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, this is an idiom just for pretty much all of eternity, right? Since long ago, the first humans fell asleep, since the first humans died, all the way to here, everything, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Basically, the argument is nothing has changed. There is a, a scientific philosophy now called uniformitarianism. It's a long one, right? And basically, it's the same argument. James Hutton developed it in the 18th century. The, their big saying is the key to the past is the present. So what they believe is it, everything has always been the same. There are no changes on this earth. Everything has been the same. Therefore, we can accurately predict what's happening now and what's happening in the future. That's the idea behind uniformitarianism. It's not a new idea. It's always been around. That was the argument that, second, or that Peter was coming against. And that was his argument. Against. So he's going to lay out an argument. But basically, what they're really meaning, what they're getting into, is that God doesn't interact in this world. I, I don't, I kind of struggle back and forth of whether or not to get into the whole science. I'm going to just uh, plug Canyon Ministries right now because Adam does a great job. It, you should definitely book a tour with Canyon Ministries. They'll, they'll talk a lot about uniformitarianism. They'll talk a lot about the science. They'll get really deep into the science. If you want to deep dive into the science of it, Adam, just, just wave hi to everybody so they can know who you are. <laughs> talk to Adam. Book a trip with Canyon Ministries, it's, it's really amazing. So I'm going to skip all the science of it and just get to the point. What's the point of their argument? The point of their argument is God doesn't intervene. Da, God doesn't interact in human history. So Peter's going to lay out an argument to refute that. And it's going to start off with creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. So we got to stop, just before we even get into the argument, we got to stop there and just talk about this deliberate overlook. That means that they are intentionally choosing not to see. They're intentionally choosing not to see what's right before them. Have you ever known someone who intentionally, something was going on in their life, and they intentionally chose not to pay attention to that thing? 
I know a lady who, uh, her husband was having an affair, multiple affairs, for several years. And everyone in the town knew it. Even her own children knew it. But when it finally came out to her, she was shocked. She couldn't believe it. Well, it's because she intentionally chose not to see it. The evidence was all right there. In fact, other women were constantly calling her house, and she'd answer, and some woman would, would, would uh, respond, and she'd be like, well, that was weird. Well, why was it weird to her? All the evidence was pointing one way. But she didn't want to believe what was happening in her life. She didn't want to believe that it could happen to her. So she intentionally chose not to see it. That's what's going on here. They deliberately overlook this fact. They intentionally don't want to see the evidence that points in a certain direction. Why don't they want to see it? Because they want to be their own God. They don't want to have to change their life. Re disbelief is always a result of rebellion, not of confusion. The evidence is there for us. If we want to believe in God, all the evidence is there. Disbelief is a result of rebellion, not confusion. So they de deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So what he's getting to here is creation. The fact that there is a creation points to the existence of God, points to the fact that God intervened in human history at some point, right? That's the first point. And we can still see this to this day. There is a creation, therefore there must be a creator. If you walked into this building, you wouldn't say, wow, this is very impressive that this building formed from nothing. No, you would see this building and you would say, there is a specific design here. There had to have been people that were involved with building this building. The fact that this building was created speaks to a creator. Richard Dawkins was in a debate. I love. Just like Aldous Huxley, I also really enjoy Richard Dawkins. And I enjoy Richard Dawkins. He's, a, he's an, I'll say, infamous atheist. And he's, I enjoy him because he follows the logical conclusion, right? That each worldview has a progression and an ultimate result. And what Richard Dawkins does is he comes to the ultimate result. There are some people that hold his worldview, but, but they don't want to fully admit all of the outcomes that that worldview has. Richard Dawkins, for the most part, will fully admit the outcomes of that worldview. So that's why I like him. But he was in a debate one time, and he was debating a Christian, and he said this thing. He said, well, I don't know why something can't come from nothing. And the entire audience laughed. And he said, why are you laughing? Well, they're laughing because it's so preposterous. We know that, that nothing produces nothing. If you have something, there has to be something there to begin with. That thing, we believe, is God. God creates the world. And we can see the building blocks of the world, so, we, so that speaks to a creator. It's a huge apologetic for, for a creator. So, that's his first argument. There is a creation, therefore there has to be a creator. That's his first argument. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This is speaking of the flood. So this is a second big argument. The people of the flood also were just like these false teachers. They didn't believe that there was a God who would judge. So they waited around saying, where is the promise of his judgment? 
and then they were wiped out. So that's what he's getting at here. He's saying God is going to judge. He has stepped into human history before. Then his third argument is, and that by means of these, oh, sorry, but if the same word, or by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is the future. So there's two instances in the past where God stepped in, and this is the future, that there will be judgment and destruction. This term destruction means that their rebellion will come to nothing. Our rebellion against God will come to nothing. If you're still shaking your fist at God, saying, I want to be my own God, your rebellion against God will come to nothing. That's the point that he's getting at. God has stepped into human history. We can still see it to this day. And I think one of the biggest arguments that he doesn't make is that we can still see God stepping into human history today by changed lives. I can tell you without a doubt that I would not be the guy that I am without God's intervention. I was on a path of self-destruction. I was a selfish, self-centered, self-righteous jerk. But God has transformed my heart. My parents are here this week. It's been a pleasure to have them. They are examples to me of God's intervention because they would not be married to this day without God. And I watched them every morning. They wake up and they take a walk. And I watched them this week as they held hands going for a walk. That is God's intervention because there was a time when they wouldn't even hold hands. There was a time they didn't even want to live together. But God has worked in their hearts. God has changed their hearts. How about you? Has God changed you? Has God worked in your life? Who would you be if you hadn't come across God? If, if you hadn't decided to submit your life to God? Who would you be right now? God is still interacting in human history. We can see the impact he makes on lives. Here in two weeks, we're going to have a baptism service. I'm so excited about it. And part of the reason why I'm excited is because we get to see God interacting in people's lives. And the baptism service is a way that people get to say publicly, hey, God is changing who I am. He is refining me and making me more of who he created me to be because God created every single one of us and he created every single one of us with a purpose. And when we submit our lives to him, we grow and grow more in who he created us to be. So God is still interacting. And then he goes on and he says, but. So, so he's, he's refuted them one way, saying that God has shown up in human history. But also, even if he hasn't, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and, as, and a thousand years as one day. So what he's getting at here is, hey, look, you might to live, live to be 80 years old. And you think because you're 80 years old, you've got this huge perspective. So I don't mean to pick on your age today, Jack. <laughs> because you're 80 years old, you think you have this huge perspective. But God has lived for eternity. He's lived for eternity, so what you think is a really long time is absolutely nothing for God. Our 2,000 years that we've been waiting is nothing for God because he's lived for eternity. So what we think is slowness is not slowness. What we think 
is God faltering on his promise is not God faltering on his promise. And so he continues with this argument. The Lord is not slow. This term slow means like lazy. So the Lord is not lazy to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all but that all should reach repentance. So what's the point here is that God is not being lazy. He's being patient, and there's a huge difference. God continues to wait because every day more people put their faith and trust in him. And he knows that the next day, tomorrow, someone is going to put their faith and trust in him. And he knows that someone will do that, and so he waits because he wants that person to be saved. Could you imagine if God came in judgment the day before you put your faith and trust in him? For all of eternity, you would suffer because God wasn't patient. So he's not saying that God is slow. He's saying that God's patient because God knows every single day another life will be saved for all of eternity. That's the point he's making. And he wishes that all would come to repentance. And then he says, but the day of the Lord. So don't be confused. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he's saying here, God is patient. But don't be deceived. Judgment will come. God is a holy God. He is perfectly just. And every single one of us has shaken our fist in rebellion against him. Every single one of us have said, at some point in our life, God, I don't want you to be my boss. I want to be the boss. And because of that, every single one of us deserves death or eternal separation from him. But God is merciful, wanting all of us to repent. And what's happening with these false teachers is that they are mistaking mercy for apathy. Don't mistake God's mercy for apathy. God is merciful, but he's not apathetic. And he's not apathetic about justice. We hear a lot about justice these days, and we should care about justice. We should care about justice because God cares about justice. Which, by the way, that's the true drive for justice. And that's the true gauge for justice. If we don't believe in a God, then what's the true gauge for justice? Going back to Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins recently said that uh, he, he thinks Down syndrome kids should be aborted. Why does he think that? Because their life isn't as valuable as a regular kid. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't invest our resources in someone that's not of value. Once again, I love Richard Dawkins because he follows the logical flow, right? If we don't believe in God, then a Down syndrome kid doesn't have value. But because we believe in God and we believe that all people were created in his image, we believe that no matter who you are, you have value because you carry the image of God. And so if you're a Down syndrome kid, you have value. God has said you have value and we value you. But that's what you get. That's the justice you get when you throw God off to the side. God cares deeply about justice. And don't be fooled. Justice will come. The question is, who will pay the bill? 
Because every single one of us has rebelled against God. Every single one of us deserves eternal separation from God. We all deserve hell. And the judge is coming. Justice will be served. The bill is coming to be paid. The question is who will pay the bill? Jesus has paid the bill on your behalf. Will you accept it? When I was in college, I had my two best friends. They always wanted to be the one that paid. And so whenever a bill would come, they'd fight over who was going to pay. And it was, got really embarrassing once because we were in Target. And they started fighting over it, and they ended up breaking the credit card machine. <laughs> Some of us don't believe a bill will ever come. You're ignoring that justice will be served. But some of us are like my friends, and you're fighting to be the one to pay the bill. And it's like you're beating Jesus off, thinking you can pay the bill. You can't pay the bill. The price is too high. Justice is coming. Jesus has paid the bill. Will you put your faith and trust in him? that he paid the price for your sin. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you didn't leave us to our rebellion, that you interact with humans all the time. We can see it in each other's lives. And that as we submit to your word, you grow us in your grace. Lord, we thank you that you paid the bill, that you care deeply about justice, but you're also merciful. And because you care about justice, and because you care about mercy, you came and you paid the bill for our rebellion. And Lord, we pray that we would put our faith and trust in your payment as full. Help us not to wrestle to try to pay the bill on our own. And help us to trust in your true justice. In your name we pray. Amen.